Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. much Arvind for joining us on the BIOS podcast. We're super excited to hear more about your perspective as kind of a longtime champion of biotech and share your wisdom. So really great to have you. Kicking things off, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and Mayfield? Absolutely. First of all, yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, my background is uh, yeah, I'm probably most well-known for uh, starting IndieBio, uh, which is now the world's leading biotech accelerator and um, helping to launch the uh, alternative protein uh, movement um, amongst other companies and uh, other players in the industry. Uh, but really, um, I my whole philosophy is to use and see biology as a technology that can um, help address some of the world's biggest problems uh, from uh, what I call planetary health, which is uh, climate change and other um, human-induced issues in our environment to uh, human health, which is healthcare, disease mitigation, and uh, living longer and and healthier lives. Um, About six months ago, seven months ago, I made a transition to Mayfield, um, which is a 50-year-old, uh, one of the very first venture capital funds, uh, and also an early investor in Amgen, Genentech, Malin Pharma, and many of the other um, sort of critical early uh, biotech companies. And so I joined uh, Mayfield to co-lead the engineering biology practice and to continue that legacy that was started um, by Mayfield uh, decades ago um, and really use biology as a technology to, to go into the future. Uh, so at Mayfield, you know, I'm, I'm investing in a different stage. At IndieBio, I, st- I invested uh, $250,000 per, per company. Now uh, I can r- I'm looking at writing checks up to $10 million um, and really looking at a Series A level where um, it's far deeper of a relationship and um, fewer investments and much higher touch. Um, but in general, I will write seed checks uh, up to, you know, it would do two, two to $3 million checks, but as well as um, six to 10, which are the kind of two ranges that things tend to fall into um, and uh, take a board seat in the whole things. I tend to lead rounds more than anything else. Perfect. So you've had quite a journey with your career. You started off in design, went on to found IndieBio, and now you're leading the engineering biology practice at Mayfield. Can you give us a little more color into how you made these decisions and kind of how your personal mission has evolved over the course of your career? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Thank you. Um, you know, if you look at my whole career, um, it seems super random. Uh, you know, starting in finance, actually, a lot of people don't know, um, 
I, I studied genetic engineering, so I have a basis in, in the biology and the molecular biology techniques, um, but it was really slow at the time and, and not to my um, personality. Uh, but I went on to study finance and um, became an options trader. And then from there went into design um, because I, I valued more than just making money. And I think that was a very important thing I learned when I was very young was um, seeing people make a lot of money without creating a lot of value led to um, a sickness in the soul is the best way I can put it. Um, and these were people I worked next to every single day um that had kind of achieved everything you're supposed to achieve uh and they were just absolutely miserable people and um it, it sent me to go soul searching and and that soul searching led me to find how to create value which was to make things and um that's what led me to design and so the the idea of design is that you are using in essence um science right the ability of you, you know, um, making something, having a hypothesis, people use it and you refine it uh, in order to create something that is uh, in the end a creative act. And, and that was really exciting for me. And so as an industrial designer, um, I worked at a firm called IDEO. And I always, so this is the thread that ties everything together is always asking what else can you do with what you know? And so, you know, at IDEO, I designed um, probably the most well-known thing is the Samsung Galaxy Curve, um, but many other products that people use every day. And um, I always ask myself, well, why, why do we have the constraints that we have for, the, for this product to begin with? And that comes from business. And so I started asking, well, how do you design the business to begin with from scratch? How do you, what are all the constraints that you could possibly find? Um, and that led me to startups because a startup is that ultimate act of creation where you're building all the constraints around whatever you want to produce in the end from the very beginning. And that was an incredible, um, that was an incredible experience for me. Uh, my wife um, founded a startup called Starters and I kind of got to be involved and um, and uh, participate. And uh, just, you know, it, it was just the amount of value creation that happened within such a short amount of time. People were emailing my wife saying, hey, you know, you changed my life. You allowed me to get started in my fitness journey. I never thought that was possible. And I'm like, I designed like these phones that everyone uses. No one sent me an email like saying thank you. And it, it was just a, a light bulb moment for me. Um, and, you know, following that experience as I was, uh, I lived in China at the time, coming back to the United States, um, people saying, um, hey, you should be a venture capitalist. And I was like, no, I've done finance, don't want to do that again. But um, I learned that early stage VC is very little like finance, how <laughs> almost has no resemblance to finance at all. Um, it's actually helping two to three people build a, build a, a business through product, which is what I did as a designer. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. The The difference is just the business model, um, which I found to be far more honest. You get to you get to invest in, in uh, founders for the privilege to work with them on a world-changing idea. Like, amazing. So that's when um, I met a remarkable man named Sean O'Sullivan, who 
is truly a humanitarian at heart, but also an incredible business person and investor. Um, and I told him my idea of using biology to um, solve the world's biggest problems, not just healthcare, but um, but with uh, but with climate change and and you know reinventing how we make things. He thought this was in 2014, 2013, sorry. Um, early 2013 is when we had this conversation because I started at SSV in 2013, um, September. So, um, you know, before any of this was a thing, um, he's, he, he had the foresight to say, yeah, this, 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 this will work. Um, I think this will work and it's worth um, investing in. So I joined SOSV, I left IDEO, joined SOSV in order to find all the constraints that we could find around, uh, around bu building next generation businesses to reinvent the world. Um, and that led, you know, so um, that led to IndieBio or I, I started IndieBio and, uh, and really, you know, the idea there was there was a, a whole class of, of capital that was underserved in biotech, which is the seed in traditional tech, like uh, IT, people were already writing, YC was already doing like 100K checks, 50K checks, uh, and no one was doing that for biotech. And, and everyone, the, the conventional wisdom is, oh, it's too expensive, right? And yeah, you know, there, that is true, but that capital expense could be amortized across a lab that many different companies could use at the same time. And so I saw a way of, of pulling that startup cost out and, you know, it, turning it into sort of operating expense. Um, and that's why I built a lab at IndieBio that all the companies can share because now that what they would normally have to spend $80,000 to buy a freezer, they don't have to spend any money. They just have to get to work and see if their, if their concept can, can turn into a product within four or five months. Um, so that was the concept in it, and it was the right place, right time. And, um, you know, uh, Clara Foods, Perfect Day, Memphis Meats, um, Prelis, like, it's just a remarkable list of founders we were um, lucky enough to, to back. So, um, so that's how it all kind of weaves together in the philosophy, really. It's just never, never stopping. And, uh, like, you know, I could have easily stopped at IDEO and said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm a well-known designer and this is generally the top of your career and this is, you know, but um, I took the risk of starting my entire career over in venture capital. I was never a venture capitalist and, um, you know, risked the entire career again. And then, you know, even at IndieBio, IndieBio became an institution um, I know how to do it. We could, I, I could normally just stop there and instead, okay, well, how do we continue pushing ourselves? How do I push myself um, and never stop, never stop learning? So that's a thread that weaves everything together is, is learning something new. Um, I feel like if I have learned almost everything there is to learn about something, you know, like, uh, then that's the end of that line. And you should now go to the adjacent area and, uh, and build on that foundation and continue driving forward. Absolutely. I think that question you mentioned of asking yourself what you don't know is incredibly important to ask. And it's interesting to see that that's how it kind of guided you throughout your journey.
narrowing in here on your current role, would love to hear more about kind of what it is you do at Mayfield and, and what your theses are like there. Yeah. Um, so my my role at Mayfield is general partner. Um, I co-lead uh, the Eng Biopractice with with Orshit. Really, I'm looking at investing in early stage companies, um, joining the board. I only lead rounds. Um, and so, you know, at IndieBio, so it was funny, companies would always come back to me and be like, hey, you know, we have all this interest, but we everyone says you just need a lead. And, um, and I find that interesting where, you know, my goal at Series A is to only lead. Um, I only want to do that primary diligence. I want to know for myself whether or not um, this is a company I want to spend my my real time energy and my network on, um, and and it's very very satisfying for me um, in that way. Uh, it requires um, yeah, it requires a different skill set. Um, some of it overlaps with uh, the skill set from IndieBio, but uh, there's definitely other other skills that I've been learning, which is great. That's why I made the transition. I, I retain a venture advisor role at IndieBio. So um, IndieBio is my legacy. It's very important to me that IndieBio succeeds. And Poe Bronson, who I wrote my book, Decoding the World With, um, my co-author is running IndieBio San Francisco now. Steve Chambers runs New York. Um, the organization of IndieBio is incredibly strong. and. Uh, in a great place to, to succeed. So um, I'm looking to, my, my job at Mayfield is to help put great scientists into business. Th that's the simple way to put it. Um, and whether that takes a $2 million um, investment, $5 million investment, or a $10 million, $8 million, $10 million investment um, matters less to me than the audacity of the goal and um, the ability to to reshape history with what you're trying to do. So I think like that's that's the important part of what I'm looking for. Um, I'm looking for really groundbreaking approaches, really orthogonal approaches to what everyone else is doing um, that can reshape entire industries. Because in the next 20 years, most industries will be reshaped given the undeniable trends of climate change, um, generational shifts in Gen Z and millennial behaviors. Um, th these are, and, and, and demographic trends in the aging boomers and what's gonna happen um, with their health. So when you mix all these things together, I I've never seen more opportunity, entrepreneurial opportunity in history, in, in the history of, of humanity probably. Yeah, so on this point of uh, groundbreaking discovery, one of the guiding principles at Mayfield is this idea of conscious capital. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about what this is and how you put into practice at Mayfield? Yeah, um, it's one of the reasons I joined Mayfield specifically over other top firms. Um, and Naveen Chada, who's the managing director of Mayfield, which which is a top five fund in returns. Um, it was interesting when I was talking to him about their philosophy and his philosophy, um, realizing how closely it aligned with mine at IndieBios, which is this idea that you can actually have better products for people and the world without uh, 
without having lower returns. And it's just about backing people with those kinds of attitudes. So, you know, a good example is Lyft, which is a Mayfield investment versus Uber, which is not, right? There's a clear difference in the way they go about business than um, Uber went about business at the time. And, uh, and if you look at the stock prices over time, they closed the gap. Um, the valuations are closing. So it's interesting that this approach of uh, being conscious about the way you go out and do business um, leads to better outcomes, I think is, is bearing out in the public markets, which is the ultimate place. Um, because the ultimate markets don't care about labels or conscious this or conscious that. They just care about making money. And so uh, the experiment really is, if you're better for people and better for the planet, do does the consumer care? And the answer will be yes in the long run. You just might have to be patient. Um, you know, a great, another great example is Poshmark. Um, you know, Poshmark is a... Uh, a secondhand um, peer-to-peer um, marketplace for clothing. The number one way you could affect climate change today as a person, as an individual, is to consume less. That's the number one way. And so how do you do so, really? Uh, by not consuming new things, by you know enabling these peer-to-peer economies. So these marketplaces, um, Grove Collaborative is a marketplace for sustainably derived and um, sourced goods um, currently hit a billion dollar valuation. Uh, these are all Mayfield portfolio companies prior to me joining. And when I started hearing this philosophy and, and seeing it with my philosophy, I was just like, oh man, I didn't think a series A firm on, on Sand Hill Road could possibly <laughs> um, think like this, right? It's, uh, and so that that's what gave me the courage to be able to join them because I feel like I, I help. I joined a mission um, that's in line with mine, uh, and and there's a synergy there. Um, so the way it's working out now with me is is the same exact thing, right? I'm fighting for human and planetary health, um, and looking for those groundbreaking types of investments um, that can move the needle um, for society. Absolutely, yeah. I think. One, you mentioned human planetary health as kind of your two main themes that you keep coming back to. Within both of those really, synthetic biology is kind of this big opportunity for innovation and how we can solve some of the biggest problems in human health, but also planetary health. For those who might be unfamiliar with SynBio, um, how would you describe it? Oh, um, synthetic biology is simply um, reprogramming cells uh, to get them to make or do things that you want them to do. So it's programming life um, uh, or programming cells rather than say programming a computer. Uh, and you, in the same way, you could just you know, program a yeast cell to make, um, to make plastic, let's just say, uh, or fats or oils uh, that we consume instead of alcohol. Uh, which is what they naturally would make uh, when they eat sugar. So that's synthetic biology. Now, synthetic biology is really blossoming in so many different areas because people are using it to program um, 
human immune cells uh, to recognize different um, targets like cancer cells, uh, all the way to using it to make uh, cheese without the cow, right? So that's the breadth and the power of um, a, a basic approach like, or a basic concept like synthetic biology. Are there any particular spaces within synthetic biology or companies that you're excited about for how they're approaching the future? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, well, there's, there's a couple things. One is um, making, so, so right now, everyone's making proteins using synthetic biology on the planetary health side. Um, I think on the planetary health side, multi-step uh, reactions uh, to make heart, you know, to, to make hard, harder uh, compounds like um, different types of plastics, different types of uh, petroleum based products is the next frontier. Um, and there are several companies that are doing strain engineering like Ginkgo Bioworks and Zymergen that are focused on those kinds of things. Um, but I think the next, <laughs> the frontier really after that um, is making and designing new materials that we haven't necessarily seen before, hybrids. So here's a good, like you, you could use the evolutionary tree to find compounds that are, that we don't know about today, um, but they exist, that have properties that would be extremely beneficial. Um, for us. So uh, just, just, it's just a wide open field, whether they're in medicine, um, you know, like having uh, yeast or E. coli um, evolve uh, medicines um, for us in, you know, when, when presented with the target uh, that you could then have a manufacturing platform by definition, because that bug now makes that, that bacterium or that yeast now makes that already. And so manufacturing is built into the discovery and selection. Um, I think that's what's really powerful about synthetic biology when it comes to, the, to these horizons where, um, you know, in scientific terms, uh, sorry, jargon, jargon alert, um, they can create what's known as a functional readout, um, which is the product that you get out of uh, when you select, let's just say you you want a, a bacteria to to evolve a drug, how do you know that drug works? Well, generally in drug discovery using medicinal chemistry, you have to say, okay, well, how tightly does it bind to its target? And then you use that as a proxy um, for how well it will work. Here you could say you could have a reporter like, if this drug works, then the then the bacteria lives. If if it doesn't, it dies, right? And in the presence of some medium or something like that. And in doing so, you can literally find the one that actually like um, bound and caused enough binding to stop the living of that cell and, uh, or, you know, it's, or to promote the living of that cell in, in the case that I just, uh, the example I just said. So that's incredibly powerful. And these platforms, then you could, you could functionalize those readouts in many ways, right? Um, as you could imagine, this technique is generalizable. So that's why I think we're at the very tip of the iceberg. You know, it's, um, 
there's so much more, uh, you know, dark matter to explore around what we can do with the, with the, what I would call a paradigm, you know, this way of thinking, um, what are all the ways this paradigm could be um, applied? It's just, it, it, like I said, it's one of the greatest op entrepreneurial opportunities in history. Absolutely. There's, I mean, to echo your thoughts on how we're at the tip of the iceberg, there's really so much about biology that we're just beginning to uncover. And that's really what makes it so fun. Yeah. Um, synthetic biology is, is one way that we're digitizing biology and kind of ushering in this new era of biotech. But at the same time, we're also seeing rapid advances in next-gen sequencing and CRISPR, diagnostics, cell and gene therapy. I mean, the list is really endless. What is so exciting to you about this new merger of bio and engineering? Um, one is, well, one is discovery and two is repeatability. Um, you know, and on the discovery side, we're getting just all of these techniques and tools, CRISPR, things like this. You can do now CRISPR perturb seek, which is basically like causing all these mutations in a genome and then seeing, literally observing what happens uh, to the cell when you, when you do that uh, mutation uh, and then really quickly understand functionally what all these genes are doing. Um, pretty remarkable technique that gets you a lot of data. And then that data being able to um, feed into uh, understanding how to drug or make uh, something with that. And that's the engineering part. Um, I always, I always joke, I don't invest in science, I invest in engineering. Um, and what's the difference, some people will ask. Well, science is simply, if, if I could just discover X, then I could make Y. Um, like, that's what you, you, you never, I never want to invest in that. that I think the, that's the government's role of funding, right? Um, public money does that. Uh, what I want to do is say, okay, uh, we know that this technique is possible, or we know that there is a platform that can produce this kind of data. What we want to do is now engineer a drug or a material with that. Um, a good example of that from the early days at IndieBio is Clara Foods. That, that, that Arturo and David applied with a one pager um, that basically outlined, oh, well, we're going to use recombinant technology to introduce uh, chicken egg white proteins into, um, into bacteria and make, uh, and make those proteins and make an egg white. There's no science there, right? Um, those are all known techniques. On paper, you could look at that and say, oh, yeah, um, makes sense. And so really the ability to do that is engineering. Um, now where we're at five years later, six years later, my gosh, time flies, um, is you know, doing, uh, starting with the computational techniques. Oh, well, we could mine all the, you know, just make, you make something up. We could mine all the data and all the, um, all the papers ever published and find drugs that have 
shared mechanisms of action with other uh, drugs that no one's ever made the connection, no professor or no, no PhD postdoc has, but our ML or NLP can find that and then we can, we can do, create a new drug with that. Like that's engineering biology. You know, that, that along, you know, along with the traditional symbio approaches that I talked about with Clara. Right, I, I think that's a great point. You draw this distinction between doing science and doing engineering and they're not mutually exclusive, but they're also definitely not the same thing. Do you have advice for potential founders who are kind of doing the science, really involved in the research part, but haven't quite thought about the commercialization aspects or putting it into practice? Yeah, know the change you wanna create in the world and then become obsessive about creating that change. I think the number one, um, the number one cause of failure uh, in first time founders, uh, philosophically, a philosophical failure, I should say, is that they focus on the technology they developed and making the technology work rather than what's the change that they wanted to see in the world and obsessively focusing on making that change because oftentimes it'll lead them away from the technology they invented. Um, and for many scientists, that doesn't compute, right? Um, you know, because they may have started a company in order to translate the science that they, that they did themselves, but no one cares about that science. No, only the only thing that anyone cares about is the value you've created in the marketplace. And I think like that's critically important to understand is if you're a new founder out there and thinking, wow, you know, I found a new way to make, um, I don't know, uh, plastic, I'll just make something up, right? Okay, cool. Like we could make we could make plastic, um, you know, without drilling for oil and all that kind of stuff. Okay, great. So the question immediately becomes, oh, so, so what? How are you gonna how are you gonna change a customer's life with that? Um, and then becoming obsessed with figuring out what that product could be and then delivering that product. Um, so starting at the end and then working backwards rather than starting with what you got today and then trying to muddle your way forwards, you'll find it's far faster and far more efficient. Um, and you start working on what's important right away. That's really great advice. Um, and I think speaking on, on that topic of change, I mean, we've seen so much change in the last year itself. COVID has really cast biotech under a global spotlight, not just with mRNA technology, but also just biological innovation as a whole. What makes now the perfect time for this explosion in SynBio and TechBio and kind of this new era really of biotech that we're seeing? Well, right now, I mean, yeah, nothing like a pandemic to have humanity remember its place in the world, right? Um, it's it's very remarkable. I remember, you know, everyone remembers when uh, the pandemic first hit, everyone was stuck inside because of a bug you couldn't see. Um, and it's it remind, I think it reminded everyone, right? Like that 
science and the progress. And remember that, I mean, there was a huge anti-science movement at the time. Right? Mm -hmm. still, there still is one, unfortunately, but um, I think it's gotten a little less. Um, but I think, you know, the, the thing that, that happens is everyone just looks around and said, wow, um, it's still possible. And no one, you know, it's easy to think when we have, you know, uh, modern, quote, modern medicine that we've cured everything and only, you know, cancer and, and heart disease gets us when we're old. Um, it's actually not true at all. And uh, climate change is going to force more and more of these pandemics on us. Um, I looked back over time and you can see an increasing frequency in pandemics in the past, over the past 1000 years. Um, and, you know, I think that's clearly because of two things. One, we're encroaching on, um, on animals habitats and creating stressed out animals that are getting sick and exposing humans to their natural viral sinks um, that they would normally not expose us to if they weren't stressed out, if we weren't killing their, their homes. Um, so that's causing one, um, you know, and then the other is just as temperatures rise, the Petri dish, you know, biology runs at, at temperature, uh, narrow temperature bands. And as temperatures rise, that biology will work faster and differently. Um, I, I read in that research in Siberia, um, as the Siberian um, steppes are starting to thaw, reindeer that died of anthrax are being uncovered. And that anthrax is being transmitted and actually killed um, a, a child um, a few years ago. It was tragic. Um, these things, you know, what else is going to emerge? I, I, you know, that's the real Jurassic Park right there. Wow, that is a chilling realization to make. I mean, it's crazy that we're already coming up on a year of just this pandemic. Um, I'm yeah. curious from your viewpoint, we've talked a lot about the present and kind of where we see biology emerging right now. What does the future of tech bio look like? How can we take what we're learning and kind of apply it to solving these problems that we're inevitably going to face? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's really working on biomanufacturing as a whole to drop cost curves uh, and really get these products um, into more people. I think across both human and planetary health, it's something I'm seeing very, very clearly that now that we've gotten a lot of products into the pipeline that can fight climate change uh, and fight human health, like antibodies, right? The first line of defense that came out against COVID was antibodies. Um, but manufacturing is nearly is so difficult for antibodies that it was never a viable strategy to stop a pandemic, still isn't. Um, and then when you look at you know, alternative protein cell-based meats and all of these other, uh, the other technologies, they're too expensive to scale right now. Uh, you know, everyone's working on it, but like as of today, uh, everyone in the world hasn't eaten uh, uh, cell-based meat because they're, you know, the industry is still working on scaling. So I think that's a huge next step that will enable um, the entire the entire industry uh, of biotechnology as 
or tech bio, as you, as you mentioned, um, to, to move forward. So if I look at prior revolutions like um, information technology, you get phases where everyone's building vertical companies where they're, you know, they have their own server farm, they have their own, you know, their own backend, their own front end. And then over time, every single one of those pieces of the technology stack became services like, oh, I can host for you, just pay me. Um, I can do your, you know, sales uh, credit card processing, just pay me. Uh, and so now you can truly build um, as a non-technical person, uh, you could build a startup, an e-commerce startup, literally as a completely non-technical person uh, in an afternoon and start selling things. Like it, it's a truly remarkable statement. Um, and so when do we hit that in biology? And I think that stack is coming, you know, um, you know, uh, culture and others are doing early fermentation um, optimization services. And you've got later stage optimization services already in the stack. Um, you know, uh, slowly over time, that's going to happen. And then the real front end of design and ideation and um, product market fit will be the main focus of the founders and the tech stack will will be there to support them. And when the cost comes down dramatically, as it is coming down dramatically every day, not just on the scaling, but on the cost of building the startup to begin with, what you could do with say $3 million, um, I think you know there's gonna be a Cambrian explosion of new bio companies. Uh, again, you know, being very, very, very early in the food revolution, I remember in 2016, like this is what, four years ago, three years ago, I was like, God, isn't everyone tired of talking or investing in food? Like it, I didn't appreciate how long and how big these types of revolutions are. And um, I'm starting to appreciate that now. Definitely. I'm, I'm glad you drew parallels between the information technology revolution and kind of what we're starting to see with biology, because this idea of cloud hosting and all these different services that go into the infrastructure of service companies and technology companies, it's really what we need and what we're starting to see with biology, with manufacturing and, and, and different types of infrastructure that enable um, some of these companies to start verticalizing. So that's really great to hear and, and gives me hope for the future. And, and Arvind, as we talk about kind of uh, COVID transpiring and the wealth of biological opportunities, um, VC is also evolving as well. And as to tackle these new opportunities, we're starting to see uh, really kind of a new archetype of a biotech founder being formed. Someone with, of course, very kind of sharp technical expertise, but also a strong data background. Uh, do you think the stereotype holds true? Kind of what have you been seeing as far as the ecosystem? What's this new type of biotech founder in your eyes? Yeah, I, you know, the technical skills are going to be uh, relevant to the actual technology for sure, right? So data becoming more and more important to more and more um, technologies and companies. So we're definitely seeing that. Like um, I actually just invested in a company um, that, one of their uh, founders is formerly of Zillow. 
and wrote like a bunch of uh, code there. So like it was one of the top engineers as well. I mean, so yeah, to, to underscore your point, Chaz, um, data is definitely in there. But like, I think the most important quality again for me, and because I can't overstate it, I'll say it again, is just really being obsessed with getting to market and being obsessed with the customer. Um, because it's so easy in a science-based company to do science. Um, and in the end, no one's gonna pay you for science. Uh, what you need to do is create a product that changes someone's life. And as we kind of unpack that, Arvind, um, I, I think we're seeing a whole kind of cataclysmic shift in just kind of what is the future of VC and how these companies are, are really kind of being commercialized as you're talking about getting to market. Um, that trend of kind of years past of you need a $50 million A round and um, to kind of drive pipeline development and clinical progression, we're, we're seeing that now shift to uh, more of a postdoc PhD kind of inventor CEO starting the company with a seed round of, of what is now kind of less than 5 million as the new standard. Um, how do you see the VC world evolving with this shift? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, and what's happening, uh, which is great because the cost, like the cost of capital for a founder is equity, right? Um, and a good founder, a natural founders naturally want to find that balance between raising money and um, keeping as much equity as possible. Uh, now, that's always a difficult balance to find, um, and it's, there's no formula for it. But I think that the thing that can be done now is $3 million gets you really far. Um, accelerators get you really far. IndieBio, for instance, um, with the Genesis Consortium is up to half a million dollars for a first round, for a first check. Um, and that comes with access to a lab. So you're not even having to take that half million and pay for any equipment. You're just seeing if your concept works or not. So it allows, what, it, what, what, what that does, what this ecosystem does is it allows founders, scientists, PhD, postdocs, like you said, to leave academia and see if their idea works. That is something that most PhDs and postdocs prior to IndieBio never had access to because the first check always took five to 10 million. And who are you gonna give five, 10 million to? Someone who's done it before or someone who's your friend? My <laughs> like, favorite East Coast investor quote is we ingressed in gray furry things. 20 year yeah. farmer veteran CEOs and mice models. And I think they were just seeing that's no longer the case in a big way. That's no longer the case in a big way. And you know, the number one thing that I wanted to disrupt when I started IndieBio was that exact quote, because I know that there are far more people out there with incredible creativity and intelligence than the East Coast investors were giving credit to. Um, you just had to figure out a way to take the risk. And so the way I built IndieBio is very clear. It's simply a way of taking more risk with less dollars on really smart, creative people and helping them learn the business side. That's it. That, I mean, it's, and I'm 
I, I've always told that secret, which, you know, most people are like, why are you telling people that? You know, like, cause I'm not worried about other indie bio competitors. One, you have to do that well. Um, two, society needs this. This isn't a, hey, Arvin wants to be rich. So like, how do you cut everyone out and try to build like, no, we, I, I have always said like when YC said they were gonna do um, biotech startups, I remember that day really clearly. I came into the office, everyone's looking all glum and I'm like, what? And they're like, YC announced we're doing biotech startups. I was like, hallelujah, that's the best news I've heard all month. Um, and you know, not only is the space being validated by you know, a major player, but there's that many more shots on goal and changing the world, like which is what we're all in it for. Um, and so, you know, that that to me was where the movement was all. I was like, I know this movement's going to get a lot more wind now, and it did. So, um, I think that's where founders to circle back to your question. Um, the entire stack from accelerators to seed to A is getting more money than it's ever than it's ever seen, which means more risk will be taken, which is just great for founders. So this last segment is kind of what we like to do us wrapping it all together, rapid fire questions. Um, kicking it off, we talked a lot about some of these big ways that biotech will change the world with human health, planetary health. What are some of the non-obvious ways that biotech will have an impact in shaping our future? And what do you see as challenges to this vision? <laughs> Ooh, uh, non-obvious ways. Um, huh. So, um, you know, there will be things that are hidden uh, from consumers, um, ingredients that they don't know about. Um, for instance, um, uh, Zymochem um, is able to make a bio-derived HDO. Um, HDO is a plasticizer used in high-end plastics, right? Um, the customer won't know what HDO is, will never care, um, but it will change their lives by removing that carbon footprint from that product. Um, that's gonna happen up and down the supply chain and that's gonna lead to overall reduced um, emissions and carbon footprint um, from society uh, and benefit everyone. And similarly on the healthcare side, uh, data and all of this is gonna feed into the ability to control our, or modulate our mental health as well as our physical health. Arvin, what advice would you give as you think about this next generation of companies to future founders looking to make a difference in life sciences? You know, I think obviously uh, creating your own data sets, I think is an important one. So what are techniques and technologies that can rapidly create functional readouts um, and systematize uh, the ability to, to, to find and select things, right? Um, create, find, select. It, it, it's such a, like evolution, it was talking to my six-year-old, um, she's now six, uh, two days ago or something like that. She, she asked me a simple question. Um, she asked me, Pape, how, how could fish's feet, how could fish's flippers have become dinosaur legs, right? It's such a awesome question because, um, it doesn't seem possible, right? It doesn't make sense. Um, but the power, you know, and talk about it. Okay. Well, time, <laughs> it's like, time's a big component. 
you need a lot of cycles of iteration and you need a selective pressure. So the power of evolution and the, the mass throughput of some of the biological techniques that we have, and then the ability to collect the data against it. Evolution is probably the, one of the most powerful forces we've ever discovered, right? Uh, as a species. Um, and the ability to concentrate that and harness it, I think will be just as transformative. So, you know, if I was to say there's a paradigm to look at, it'd be that. Definitely. As we talk about the future, what's 2050 look like? Where will we be? 2050, where are we right now? 20, we're at 2020. So um, that's 30 years from now, 30 years from now, gosh. Um, well, our food supply chain will have completely changed. Um, we will have gone through a cultural shift where killing animals um, is no longer seen as something that is ethical because there is no reason to do so anymore. And I think that is the interesting shift that happens um, in the future because until there is a perfect substitute, there is no ethical problem with killing an animal for meat right now. Um, but the second you have that, it does become an ethical question. Should you eliminate a, a, a conscious being um, when you don't have to, to provide the same unit of nutrition, flavor, taste, all of those things. Um, so I think that's one big thing that changes. Um, I think like the sun becomes the primary source of energy for um, humanity. I think that is something that will be amazing. Uh, when I say the sun, I mean driving photovoltaics, uh, driving, um, you know, driving thermal cycles that that create heat and uh, and so and create wind energy, right? Um, so clean energy becomes really important, um, and all of that electric en energy is used to green all of our supply chains. So one of the things I'm seeing that's so cool, um, I didn't invest in these myself, um, but uh, I'm certainly excited and interested in the technologies are these green steel companies. And uh, why is it cool? Because you don't have to use a blast furnace and, and, and use coal, you could use electricity and that electricity could be sourced from renewable sources. All of this is gonna add up to what I believe will reverse climate change. Um, I'm very, so that's where I'm an optimist. I'm a pessimist because I don't think it's possible without technology, which is why I invest in it all. And, and how about on the human health <laughs> side, Arvind, um, where would we be like the future of disease? Uh, how do you think that would play a role or non-role in our lives? Uh, you know, disease will still be extremely prevalent in our society. Um, I don't think, we will have appreciably lengthened our lifespans, unfortunately, our, our, our health spans, especially. I, I know there's a lot of hype, uh, hope <laughs> uh, and hype for, for it, um, but I think it's a lot harder. I think we'll see that the microbiome is far more um, part of our health than we ever even thought. Even today, we're starting to see that, and it's pretty, 
uncontroversial to say that microbiome is important in our health today. I think it's going to be shocking at how integrated it is. Um, I think uh, mental health will become the number one issue in 2050. Something I'm thinking a lot about in general, just as, you know, besides my business, um, something I am looking to invest more of my personal time into is um, helping others with mental health and specifically around suicide. I think teen suicide, you know, the, the, the trends are, are alarming. Um, I think social media has, has exacerbated a bad trend already. Uh, and so in a life of, in a life devoid of meaning, right, which as an existentialist, I, I believe in, but I think that's ultimate power as well, because you could create and craft meaning for yourself. I think that's hard for a lot of people to do. Um, and so I think socially, we need that kind of construction in order to help curb mental health challenges. Uh, um, I think that's a whole nother level of systemic. I was talking, you know, uh, talking to Lori Anderson, um, who's a professor at Yale about, and she, she's become famous for talking about happiness and studying happiness. And, you know, she was talking about how a lot of students at Yale, a huge amount are unhappy. And, um, you know, my question was, is it self-inflicted? And is that, you know, is the correlation actually conflated with causation or, or is causation, you know, being um, conflated here? And, um, you know, the result was, yeah, you know, like society needs to change some of its, some of its, uh, what it considers success and things like that. So, yeah, I think like that's, the, the, these are the other big issues, right? Um, that need to be solved in order to create a productive society, especially when work starts to become less, uh, quote unquote, necessary as robots and AI and things like this automate more and more of our lives and jobs. What does work become? You know, so many people are, their, their job is their identity. And when you take that away, that's that's both horrifyingly scary as well as a tremendous opportunity um you know and i think it's we need to help people make their transition to the opportunity side and as we wrap up arvind um any closing thoughts to put a boat on this conversation it's been wonderful to have you on the show and I cannot thank you enough for your time no i think um I think what's happening is is a true revolution. I think it's early stages, um, which is hard to imagine, but I think these things happen in 50, 50 60 year cycles. Um, and we're five, six years in, um, you know, 10 years if you start to extend to, to uh, some other earlier, you know, sort of innovations, but, but we're very, very early. And so, um, I think if, if you're a founder out there or a scientist out there or, or anyone that wants to be involved, there's so many ways to get involved and, um, and vote with your hours on the things that you care about. I think like that's what's changed. And I think that's what's exciting is people have far more ability to vote with their hours than they ever had before. Um, I don't just have to go work at IBM anymore to have a fulfilling and life and since nothing is stable anyway like in terms of jobs let's go spend the time in the right way in the way that makes us 
uh, feel better about what we're working on. Like, um, I think that's one of the things that led me to venture capital as well. Just realizing that, you know, the only thing we have is this one life and, um, and we get to choose, we get to choose what we do with it. And, um, as long as we're not worried about like what gave me the courage to leave a very comfy career and successful, you know, life in design to start over on something that was extremely like risky, you know, um, that I knew nothing about <laughs> was looking at my wife and going, Hey, you know, if it all goes to zero, would it be okay to live in a box? Sure. And what's it, what, what does it matter? And, um, you know, like, obviously, without being overly grandiose, it would suck to live in a box. But like, um, the point being, uh, having material success means much uh, less to, to us, at least, than be, being able to spend our time on things we think is, is worth our time. And so that was the trade. And I think, you know, that's the trade that Gen Z and millennials are starting to make uh, more and more. So I'm excited about I'm excited that Gen Z has a chance to become the greatest generation, um, you know, because they have the greatest problem, which is climate change um, and, you know, mental and human health. So um, I'm excited to back them. Um, so if you're a, you know, if you're a founder out there, please um, let me know what you're working on. And I'd, I'd love to talk to you about supporting you and, and, and helping you in any way. And on that note, Arvind, um, for folks that are interested in kind of following from this conversation, you, you have a book you've recently written and um, now at Mayfield, how, how should folks uh, find out more about your thinking and, and follow up with you? Right. You could follow me on Twitter. Uh, I, I'm starting to post more regularly there. Uh, Instagram as well. Just look up Arvind Gupta um, bio because I think there's a few Arvind Guptas in the world. Um, and then, um, yeah, email me at, arvind at mayfield.com not hard uh but yeah i i'm i'm pretty easy to find in general uh facebook as well all, all, all the above um yeah i'd love to hear from you thank you for listening to the bios podcast if you enjoyed it please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform for more content please visit bios.community or alix.vc